So some questions. Could you talk more about the world? Quote, the world is made by mind, led by mind, etc. I was looking at the Vipassanabhumi chant and can't quite get my rind around the order Sankara Vinya Nam Namarupa Salayatana. How does karma condition consciousness, which conditions physical forms? which conditions six sense spheres. That's counterintuitive for me. I will put it in reverse. Six sense spheres pick up physical phenomena which affect consciousness. How does a sense sphere pick up physical phenomena? Mm. It's consciousness, it's how it picks it up. So it's, you know, the picking up of physical phenomena is called consciousness. <coughs> and uh, the registering of that, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. so you have a sense door and uh, sense object, Uh, consciousness, contact, contact designations start occurring, that phenomenon becomes known as a a watch or an orange. So it's all kind of bound up really. I think you, so (coughs) the world isn't really made by yeah, it's 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 co- it's it's conditioned by what we mean by world is the uh, our kind of personal world. Now you must rem- bear in mind that uh, when you say the order sankara vinyanang namarupa, it's not always a temporal order. Like one thing occurs before another. Mm. That, that's it's not just a temporal sequence. It's the, the words. That's the way the words are. You have to have one word before another word. Um, <coughs> but if the Buddha is actually so, in, in many instances, he begins with Nama Rupa Vijnana as the basis. That's the basic structure, the living structure. Uh, where, uh, uh, so Rupa, uh, uh, <coughs> both the consciousness, so he says, well, you can look at the Vijnana Rupa a connection. So he's saying, well, you know, if there wasn't a physical form for consciousness to arise within, how could there be any you know, you've got to have an eyeball in order to see something. So you could say that consciousness arises dependent upon a form, having a, a really a living object, a living form, a body. Uh, so you take Rupa like that. So he's saying, well, in the case of uh, uh, the prenate, you try and condition consciousness arises in the womb. There's no sense organs there. I mean, there's no seeing, no tasting. It's just conscious arising within a form requires a form to take as a basis in this way we would say that you know um, consciousness depends upon form now also if we look at it another way we say in order to uh, <coughs> perform like to see something yeah you know there has to be a form but then you can't really see it unless you have a consciousness that can see it i mean you stick it up uh, an apple in front of a blind person, they can't see it. If their eyes are open, so it has to be a functioning consciousness. So in this way, the experience of consciousness depends upon the experience of a form depends upon consciousness. But consciousness depends upon a form to be the basis for that consciousness. 
So it's it's kind of much more woven like that. And in order for anything to be to be apprehended and known, there has to be nama. So you know. So if we uh, that requires perception, uh, contact. So, for example, I'm going to be sitting in a chair watching a movie, and you know, certainly the body is there. Certainly, the body is in touch with the chair. Certainly, it's probably experiencing physical sensations, and yet we're absorbed in the movie. We don't feel what's going on in our feet or our legs or our back. It's aware of the movie, so no contact occurs. Uh, even though you have a body that's that's got tactile consciousness in it but there's no contact because your contact is driven by attention your attention's on the movie getting all kinds of perceptions of feelings dependent upon contact so so that's a variable thing contact could be in your legs or it could be on the screen see so so the, the nama also as a, the qualities of nama have a very um, significant role uh, in, in what one's here and now world consists of, where it consists of a kind of a, you know a thriller movie where you're experiencing terror and fear and excitement, even though you're basically sitting in a chair <laughs> on one level, but you're not. <laughs> so. This this nama aspect is is the real um, um, you could say it is it's our world and yet of course it does depend upon uh, you know there being uh, some some to some some extent a definite independent object yeah there is a movie going on yeah that's an independent object but. Uh, in order for it to make into our world, there has to be a consciousness receiving it. There has to be the contact. We're actually not thinking about something else or, or having a conversation, so a definite contact. And there has to be some way in which that experience is being internalized as thrilling, exciting, boring, whatever. That what makes it real. If it's just pictures flashing across a screen, so what, you know? But it means something to us. That what that what makes it our world. So in this way, our world is nama rupa vijnana. Yeah, and the six sense bases coming from that structure, they can alternate. It could be seeing, it could be hearing, it could be touching, it could be tasting, and they flicker. Yeah, and mind synthesizes. It says there's a sight. The mind adds its bit to the seeing. So it just doesn't, we don't just see things, we see things and interpret them. We see things and are moved by them. We see things and ignore them. We see things and flick our attention somewhere else. So it's the synthesis between the mind and the other sense organs that um, (coughs) acts as the determining factor of what kind of world will arise. Right? So yeah, it's the play of the sense organs with consciousness and nama and naming and form that's generating our world. Right? So that's the structure. Now, the next point is, why does the mind select this and not that? Why does the mind perceive this as thrilling, this as boring? Why does the mind not notice this and notice that? Sankara is the answer. <laughs> The sankara in the mind consciousness is saying, you know, I'm interested in this. I'm not interested in that. It's, that's what's that's the volitional impulse that is in fact determining what the mind will attend to and also will determine how the mind synthesizes that. You know, um, say, you know, if you're, say you're living in America, you'd see a, so you see, a, say you see a computer, a laptop computer, or a laptop computer. Yeah. So, but then if you uh, took that down to the Amazon, gave it to a tribe, and what do you think he'd think? What do you think he'd see? 
strange little box. So what? Looks inside it, nothing in there. You wouldn't see a computer. <laughs> it doesn't, because there's no, there's no designation of that. There's no signifier of that. Hmm? So, you know, so even perception is conditioned, right? It's conditioned, isn't it? And we take, because we're probably in any particular culture, uh, we take particular perceptions as, oh, yeah, that's, that's true. We'll agree upon them. Yeah. And we think it actually is that way. Yeah, like you see these little squiggles. And, oh, that's, that's words. These little, because we've all known, we've seen so many of these forms. These are words. And you look at that and really hear this sound in your head. <laughs> From the, what are little black lines on a piece of paper? That's a perception, but it's, we're so in, it's conditioned, it's been built in. If you're two years old, what would you see? Yeah, what would you see? If, uh, you know, if you're Russian, you look at that, you probably recognize it's writing, but you wouldn't be able to get any noises going in your head because it's a different alphabet. But we so imagine that that squiggle actually is this sound in my head. That's perception. And that's conditioned. That's the sankara. So sankaras condition the perceptions. Right? So that's what's happening in mind. So sankhara are the things that affect the mind consciousness uh, through these particular ways. They affect it both in terms of generating perceptions and establishing them. Sankhara affect consciousness in terms of uh, what it's interested in. That naturally affects consciousness in terms of what it gives attention to. Yeah. So dependent upon that, different kinds of contact occur. All that's conditioned. Yeah. And even to the extent to which your mental consciousness is conditioned, uh, the feeling of it is conditioned. Yeah. So when does a talk become boring? It's conditioned by the state of mind you're in, interest or energy you have or things like that. So the very feeling, pleasant or, or unpleasant, is conditioned. Right? In terms of mind, it's purely conditioned. So that's how our world is, is formed. What we say is agreeable, disagreeable, that's conditioned. That's the sankara. And the karma, karma forming tendency of it is that <coughs> depending upon what we've been engaged with, uh, what has affected us and what we've been affected by, we will establish particular preferences and favorings and inclinations. Some things frighten me that don't frighten other people and so forth. You know, I see this person, I feel alarmed. I see this person, I feel intimidated. I see a spider, I feel frightened. I mean, a spider should be frightened of you rather than the other way around. You know, whapping great big thing that splats them all the time. So how many people get killed by spiders? How many spiders get killed by people? <laughs> You're frightened of a spider. But, you know, the, you get, so these karmic, you get these karmic tendencies established. You know? And that conditions consciousness. So, and why are those karmic tendencies established? What is the cause and the condition for those karmic tendencies to establish to, to the point to which they very much shape and direct our world almost out of control? We don't want to feel fear, and yet we do. Why, what's happening? Are we just... Not, not noticing, not really understanding. This is just causes and conditions. It's empty. It's impermanent. It's changeable. It's not self. Uh, through not really having that, that then these uh, karmic 
tendencies <coughs> get ingrained and established. So we could say that yeah, one way of, of explaining that is that the those sankharas are dependent upon or dependent upon um, a certain lack of gnosis, a lack of a, an absence of full awakening. And there, there's many, you know, and that, so we would also recognize that, you know, even the sense to which our, our consciousness, by and large, uh, is just tethered to the sense spheres and to particular levels of consciousness. Uh, we take that to be the only reality there is because we haven't seen immaterial spheres, we haven't seen boundless consciousness, we haven't been in there, we haven't experienced places perhaps where the mind stops thinking. So to, to, so that limitation, yeah, that's sankhara, that's conditioned in. And so we take our reality to be a rather limited, from Buddha's point of view, a rather limited keyhole that we're looking through with quite distorted or susceptible vision. So this is all bound up. Mm. <coughs> now you can start more or less any place on that. Or that you could start indeed with the sense spheres, because that's something Nama Rupa, I don't know. Yeah, we all know we can see things. That's obviously you could start there. But then you've got to recognize, well, you know, what is seeing something about? That's consciousness. And um, what's a thing? That's rupa. And how is that? How is that internalized? That's nama. And what particular ways are things internalized? There's the sankara. The, mo- the ways in which the world has its own flavors and tastes and angles for me. Why it's my world, my karmic domain, is because of the sankara. Uh, in, uh, proclivities and, and injections that have occurred occurring in that. Mm. <coughs> so then, this of course makes it, uh, you know, you begin to. Uh, Apprehend well. It's somehow in all this. It's not just a a, a sheer uh, an eye sees a form, yeah. but this also means that because the whole thing is caused and conditioned by some uh, and sankara and avijja are really right there in that whole weave that with the elimination of a region with increasing clarity, with increasing groundedness, with increasing sense of really sensing what's really there, there can be the quietening of these karma formations, the eliminations of tendencies, karma formations based upon fear or greed or hatred or uh, and so forth. You know? And therefore, the world can change. Your world can change quite powerfully. You know? And you might say you'd you'd see the same things, but they wouldn't be the same things in the same way. They they could be seen in a very different light. Yeah. Particularly, of course, this one. <laughs> uh, we experience in a very different light. Next question. Can you talk about the nature of the Brahma Viharas, especially the first three? <coughs> Metta, Karuna, Mudita, Upeka. These are the four Brahma Viharas. Are they innate to one's mind or do they need to be constructed or created through cultivation? 
They are in some respect innate but to be developed. So as human beings, one of our main um, features is we are, we have, we mirror, we, we are affected by other humans and in fact by uh, other creatures, we feel affected by them. So we have an innate empathic sense and sometimes this is extremely painful um, when you see other creatures suffering and in pain. Mm. So we have this innate sense, empathy. Yeah. Mm. That's called, uh, so anukampa is the word for that and that's the basis. Uh, and so from that uh, these Brahmaviharas are called uh, Chetana or intentions. And so for uh, an uncultivated person these some of these intentions can happen uh, along with other intentions of course. Intentions based upon ill will, intention based upon callousness, brutality, intentions based upon jealousy, uh, negativity, intentions based upon um, excitement and uh, dis- despair. The chitta can be, these activations can occur. But in there, most beings have some degree of metta, goodwill, a uh, sense of uh, move towards um, uh, kindly concern, uh, interest in a, in a more uh, giving, nourishing way. Um, but of course the heart is not by no means these aren't the only intentions so the theme is that these seeds of intentionality are to be focused upon and generated made much of and extended um, so that they uh, mm, begin to uh, become dominant patterns of jitta of the of the sankharas, they are sankharas, they they're for, they're formations, they're activations, they're sankara, but they are sankharas that lead to skillful states, um, <coughs> and they can also be seen with insight for complete liberation. They can be reviewed. So we might um, just bear in mind the model. If you have these sankharas like a like a current, like forces, like a, consider them the whole karmic thing to be like force fields, uh, chaotic force fields around, mag, like magnetic fields, and there's all sorts of stuff whirling around in those fields. Because it's not just a simple field; it's got many different magnetic uh, uh, objects in it that generate fields, and there's this stuff whirling around. Some of it's good, some of it's not good. And they're all quite dynamic. So what we're looking at is can we begin to pluck out of those, that karmic field, the negative stuff? Or can we start to emphasize certain polarities within it, certain magnetic forces within that, such as the force of goodwill, uh, the force of conscience and concern, to the point to which it is more current going down that one, then eventually the other ones begin to uh, be defunct. You know, it's like the mind doesn't go there anymore. You know, it's been it's been trained and and, and uh, inclined in other intentions so powerfully that the other ones have kind of fallen away. So this is positive feedback loops, and you know. So the Brahmaviharas are uh, one simple model of that. The precepts are another model of it. Parami, ten parami, another model of that. Um, you, know, you know, all Buddhist, all Buddhist practice, as as path, involves cultivating um, skillful uh, intention to to just to starve the the. To, the mind of other forms and to send all your energy into particular skillful 
channels or generate wholesome forms. That's path. And then insight begins to be established on that because those forms are stable enough and don't keep creating chaotic negative crackle. You know, they're steady, you can abide them, they're calm and they're happy. So you can actually get a nice clear focus on it. And then they act as the basis which you begin to, this is a form, this is intention, this is like this, it happens this way. There's no person in there. Yeah. It's, it's this. <coughs> and that's, uh, that's what tiny, 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 tiny little way of describing um, liberation. Chitta is liberated from sankara. So with the ending of uh, the liberation of that, uh, you can't really even really talk about jitter anymore <laughs> because there's no way of measuring it. Jitter and chetana are clearly quite closely related. So jitter in its conditioned state is, is chetana, is volitional, it's impulsive. When the impulse is moderated, stilled and calmed, then you can't really find a measure for the, the chitta. So there's the mind of a tathagata, you just can't, you can't measure it because it's got nothing to measure it by. <laughs> you know, it's not contained in some kind of force field. <coughs> or, you know, when the tathagata abides in that, in, in that nibbana, uh, when he lets, think, lets his chitta go into the nibbanic uh, mode, you might say. And at other times the Buddha comes from that into functional life, you know, so certainly he's got his sankharas are there, noting, naming, doing stuff, but uh, there isn't any uh, grasping, clinging in that. Um, so the nature of the metta, goodwill, <coughs> you say that could be the basic, uh, means it's a very uh, uh, empowering quality. Because mm. rather than just be, have your, your chetan as your volitions dominated by sense objects that grab you or imperatives that throw you around, you say, no, no, no just, this is what I want to do. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you, it gives you, empowers you with a sense of, you know, from my own, you can't, you can't be forced <laughs> into it. The real thing is not synthetic. It's a sense of, you know, when, when the heart is freed from the anxieties and the uh, negativity and fear and ill will, then its nature is clearly goodwill and heart in that intentional quality is the nature to in the empathic mode has the nature to reach out or to connect you might say that's what empathy means it means others affect me you know there's a bond there there's some kind of resonance there so naturally there's that ah oh, you know she's in my my world as it were so that fundamental thing where you're not having a negative relationship, the quality of goodwill begins to become more uh, firmly established uh, through the uncertainties and uh, seems to me that's human nature. <coughs> Karuna is when that quality meets the suffering or the hurt uh, in 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 the field it could be of course one's own or another's it doesn't really matter because essentially this empathic sense is holistic so instead of going oh well get over it or <laughs> it's your fault anyway or you know you meet your own uh, difficult states and instead of blaming criticizing yourself you go oh that's painful mm. let's stop the pain, lots stop the negativity here. Yeah. 
Instead, karuna, that which wishes to be in the presence of suffering, that which wants to be in the presence of it, from an empathic sense. So it's not immediately doing anything about it, uh, though something may come, but that's that's a sec. That's that's another thing. First thing, it, it actually inclines to being in the presence of that which is suffering, in a sim- in an empathic way. And well, that's pretty amazing, really. What do you want to do that for? <laughs> because you either do that or you shut it off. So you begin to see the the constriction of of closing down or criticizing or blaming and you don't want that. Therefore, what's left? Now, oneself, you see your flaws and weaknesses and um, <coughs> difficult places and instead of going, cr- getting critical, touch into that, this is the afflicted, I want to be present with this. You know, of course, to, to others it's perhaps easier than to, to what we call ourself. So it's a very significant uh, inclination, intention. Mm. And very helpful, of course, because even though it might not make sense on a rational level, on the heart level, that which bearing with or being present with the unsatisfactory, the painful, and just bearing presence with it has a remedial effect. Because one element is removed, isolation. And isolation is the source of massive suffering. Self is enhanced, one feels trapped, stuck, and so this carving intensity builds up to to a huge degree. It's very important to bear that in mind because, of course, you know, many of the um, Blandishments that occur to the mind are, in a way, greed makes us separate, and this is why, uh, you know. But of course, why a greedy person is never really happy because the the this greed isolates them from others. They're not really deeply happy, contented. Mm. So this isolation is the worst thing. Everything else is bearable, manageable. And that's an important realization you know, to uh, uh, that comes with karuna. Mudita, beautiful. Uh, this is where the empathic sense is able to pick up the goodness, the worthiness, the beauty, the uplifting, the happy comfortable in in the domain in one's awareness whether it's another person or oneself it doesn't really matter you're picking up the good and the ability to enjoy it so as i was saying this morning just enjoying one's own good fortune that's considered totally totally good thing to do in buddhist circles there's nothing to feel guilty about yeah Uh, and and to notice so mudita mind, you begin to sense that, oh, beautiful, how wonderful, you know. Nobody's giving me a hard time. Yeah. There could be wars, I could be being hunted by dogs, I could be being bashed, I could be sick. And, you know, it could be all kinds of horrible things. Oh, wonderful, a great gain for me, I'm not in that condition. And then I have done, I have done a single skillful deed, beautiful, you know, I could have, you know, you pick up anything where there's goodness, or you see it in another. Yeah, you know, she really did a beautiful thing there. And the beauty of Mudita is it, it is, you know, in a way you can kind of sit back and let somebody else do all the good stuff and enjoy it. Which is really, which is great. <laughs> she really got it down. That's what Anamodana is about. We rejoice in goodness. <coughs> so this is a pretty powerful, and again on one level counterintuitive or irrational uh, sense, and it's overlooked. 
Because <coughs> it's not a matter of conceit, it's just feeling grateful that a skillful thought has arisen in this body, in this mind. Oh, I'm grateful for that. So it doesn't, you know, these things are really not self, and that's an important thing to to acknowledge. We do have these impulses, and when they arise, to make much of them. Mudita helps to nullify jealousy and, um, uh, well, I call it negativity, sullenness, sulkiness. No, I don't get such a good deal as she does. Nobody ever bothers with me. (laughs) And Karuna abolishes... uh, harshness. Um, so there's kinds of things one can say about those qualities. There, Karuna goes wrong when it becomes sorrow. Mudita goes wrong when it come, we get too exuberant, to too sort of uh, loses balance. <coughs> then you tend to cling to the good rather than acknowledge and appreciate the good as it arises. Can you expand on resourcing to advise when one is aware that one is close to the edge? Mm. Mm. There's another one here about... How does one cultivate strength of heart? Mm. Chitta is receiving... Would you say chitta has the possibility to imbue preciousness, receive impressions and perceptions, imbue preciousness? Heart opens wide with much joy with metta practice. It feels like the joy is sometimes an opening to profound sadness, though still with great Tenderness. I had images of each of my children, my husband, which led to deep feelings of attachment and sadness of their struggles. How joy and sorrow can be so closely linked? Well, <coughs> so sadness is. I mean, you be uh, aware that uh, you know these limitations when when one sees when one kind of conceives of. People, you know, then attachments occur. Uh, what we don't, we experience uh, resonances, empathies, resonances, perceptions, uh, mind states. Definitely, there is other. There's intersubjectivity. There are other beings, um, but you never really, you never really know. You know, it's always a dynamic thing. And so that keeps it uh, much more free from this grasping, clinging. Mm. And the resources of mind, well, there are so many of them, and most of a significant amount of Buddhist practice just about building up one's resources. Mm, yeah. And so, it'd be, so we could look at it again quite, review that, um, the thinking mind, we can use that as a resource by deliberately recollecting um, key themes, such as uh, turning the mind towards gratitude and goodwill, uh, towards sympathy, concern for the world of others. So you build up that resource. It helps to keep some of the really nasty stuff at bay. <coughs> Building up heart. So the inclination towards uh, apathy or ill will or just uh, getting lost in despair, that's curtailed. Uh, This makes the heart strong. So the more we curtail these uh, uh, afflictions, then the heart gets strong.
the list of parami is a is a is a very helpful list uh, so of qualities that one can cultivate um, such as kindness and uh, right energy and uh, truthfulness and patience yeah um, so these are so you can actually just sort of set that up and remember it and bear it in mind and make much of it. All these will strengthen the mind. Um, <coughs> as a, so then with this, then there's tendency for the mind to slip and stray very far is limited. But still, it can be the case that that one does suddenly fall into a slip, reactivity, you know, overwhelmed, suddenly something happens and one's thrown and slip, slipped over and overwhelmed. Um, then, um, you know, if overwhelm occurs, then this is just reflex. You get to the overwhelmed state, you just get into reactivity. Not, so most important thing is to get really, really simple. You can't rely upon thought then. Thought is too slow, too, takes too much. You go to, say, coming into your body, um, soles of the feet, walking up and down, relaxing your shoulders, breathing in and out deeply, opening the chest, open the eyes, move around, you know, just come into, into embodiment in as obvious and as simple a way as possible. Helps to take you out of the flood Um. <coughs> uh, it's all the uh, trigger of the flood will be feeling and sankara. So it's always uh, feeling and perception and sankara. The volitional tide is the sankara feeling. Is the uh, is the trigger and percep- feeling and perception of the trigger, and sankara is the emotional push, the rush of it. If that isn't checked, what happens is you get papancha, which is a proliferations about oneself and others and the future and the past and it shouldn't, and often associated with painful memories. So this cascade swamps, and each of one of them is. is, is Every movement in this cascade is also catalyzing further levels of perception and feeling till it becomes a storm, um, which when it's got its like a uh, takes over. So yeah, uh, the only way you really got to get out of that by pretty basically physical means, I would suggest. <laughs> and then as you come out of it, you can start to there's a feeling, unpleasant feeling. Feels like this. Yeah, unpleasant perception. She did insult me. I do feel hurt. She is nasty. I am wounded. Okay, that's the perception. Don't argue it. That's what you're experiencing right now. That's the perception. You know, just sort of steady up in that and begin to relax the sankara of the urge to rush or whatever you want to do, just relax the sound, just get to that, see if you can just hold, even your perception is disagreeable, the feeling is disagreeable, just see if you can name it, and just get the sankara violence to, to abate, because it will. If you, you're establishing some sense of uh, steerage. Mm. Yeah, and then there's it. Anything? So with that, okay. Yeah, she's nasty. She has insulted me. I am wounded. Oh well. <laughs> you know, it's like it's got less kick to it, and then as it diminishes a bit, I'm not that wounded. I'm just a bit fed up. That's all, and then. Well, she's probably having a bad day, and I guess I was a bit touchy. And then gradually, the, the, you know, the the, uh, the the kind of locked quality begins to soften. You think, well, you know, 
everybody's human and da 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 and I got some touchy points and uh, well, you know and suddenly the issue begins to soften a bit into into uh, something that's much more realistic <coughs> but that takes time you can't you can't expect to be really realistic on on the first moment you've got to be wild wild irrational nasty <laughs> whatever it is panicking <laughs> don't don't get stymied by it okay it's like that there's no time to try no time you know don't try and be reasonable <laughs> that may happen later first thing is just to get your feet on the ground and know what's going on and then you've got some chance in which the flood will will come down. <laughs> Trying to be reasonable about it won't. It's not going to work. Uh, then it allows that to processes to rise and pass and break up. But possibility of imbuing preciousness well hmm. well you know it's clear as the chetanas is negative and dulling and uh, habituated volitional tendencies and impulses begin to abate the uh, uh, experience of things are much more uh, mind is clearer less clogged less gunked up and therefore the experience of things are more beautiful because the mind is fresher cleaner uh, so that's just a you know, clean mind is a source of delight beauty Renunciation having a fullness because you see there is something better through giving up. It seems to me already a kernel of dispassion is present. How do you get to that point? Say, for example, with a mundane sense pleasure like chocolate. <coughs> I see the craving, preoccupation and dukkha, but still seem to hold to the idea that I want it even when I know sometimes it doesn't even taste all that good. <laughs> That's tanha for you. <laughs> yeah, well, wanting wants to want. <laughs> Something to want, because there's a certain energy in it. And you, you know, you you realise it's not really the chocolate's fault, or the taste even. Taste chocolate taste just tastes. You know that's what it does. <laughs> and uh, it's the the uh, and if you weren't craving chocolate, it'd be something else. Uh, so we so sense of dispassion occurs when you realise there's nothing. The problem isn't chocolate. Or tasting, and it's just this. Uh, uh, and this tanha isn't something I really decide about. It just happens. So that, that's that's there's the position, and you see it occurring, and you see yourself doing it, and you see yourself falling into it. And if you look at what you look, you 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 as you really contemplate what kind of mind state you're in, the mode of craving, it's not very nice. It's kind of like his tongue's hanging out, his eyeballs are glaring, his feelers are out, kind of panting. Look at the face of the mind of craving, it's not very admirable. <laughs> so you just start to review that experience. Do I have to go to this again? You know, do I have to do this again? This is really unworthy, you know, not beautiful. So, 
things like that. And so the Buddha said, you see, you see the, the hazard of sense pleasure, the potentials in it, hazards of it. So some sense of disengagement or viveka, stepping back, you see the picture as it is. This is actually how it is. Get the whole thing. Get what your chitta feels like in the craving sense, the objects, what they are, the benefits, the sum benefit is so small. The dukkha, it's, it's, hasn't, it hasn't dwindled a tad through that. Actually, you were better off before that sense object arose. And you see that and you think, oh, it's going to just kind of stop some, you know, <laughs> something's got to stop here. So renunciation. Renunciation is by no means um, the end of the story because, uh, you know, you can renounce chocolate so then you get into peanut butter. You can recycle it's going to be Netflix. Okay, you know, Netflix is going to be something else, you know. So you see, well, no, it's actually you can't keep blaming sense objects for things. They're the, they're the places where stuff flares. But So renunciation just, in a way, helps to limit it. You say, okay, let's give up that, 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 that. It helps to limit it. But still, it's got a craving's got plenty of mojo left in it. And so that really, renunciation is just a preliminary to limit that. And the further process is called relinquishment, where you begin to relax the volition within the craving, the drive of it. Uh, so relinquishment is a much more powerful and thorough practice because relinquishment really begins by you relinquish, if you like, who is this craving? Who does it belong to? Who is this person? There isn't a person. There's just that push. So there's a little bit of relinquishment there. Uh, And also relinquishment of imagining that you're beyond it. You know, you're neither in craving nor out of craving. So the self-image has to be relinquished. The attractiveness of the object has to be seen as, well, no, it's just that. It's not, it doesn't have happiness in it. That's, that's, there's some, you know, there's a mechanism happening that's invested there. It doesn't have happiness in it. So relinquishing emptiness of objects, emptiness of subject. So that, you start to, if you like, take away some of the wood from the fire in the mechanism of craving. And then this very energy of craving, what is it? It's kind of driving, driving. Where is it going to? Nowhere. It It doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't really arrive at a... Because once you fulfill it, it shoots off to something else. So we see the, we start to relinquish the message of tanha. The non-verbal message of tanha is get this and you will be happy, uh, augmented, uh, improved, made more, made more definite. And it's not <laughs> true. So it's the relinquishment of the message of craving. And those are three three places for relinquishment. Naturally, detachment or viveka, get the picture, dispassion, stop making a big thing out of it, like getting guilty about it, making just, this is the mechanism, everybody has it. Yeah, contemplate it with a sense of, mm -hmm, what's going on here? Put up reasonable boundaries and limitations and then start to work on relinquishment. (coughs) <coughs> so a couple finish off this evening mm. Mm. okay thoughts and speech reflections on right speech specifically regarding idle chatter how does one living in a setting where others are not attuned to the Training, cultivate wise restraint from idle chatter without making others feel put down, rejected, or just totally 
weirded out. (laughs) Well, the phrase making others feel is is something to be examined. (laughs) What is, you know, who makes anybody else feel anything? And what responsibility do you have to make others feel something? If you have a responsibility for that, if you accept responsibility for that, then you should certainly cultivate goodwill. And uh, if you, you know, so there, there is one's response: goodwill, compassion, and so forth. And you know, where that, what kind of words you use, what kind of language you use to express that, it's up to you. Sometimes you have to actually. Um, you know, pleasantries, okay. Yeah, pleasantries. It's where you're coming from that counts. Where you're coming from that counts. Don't want to be too clinical about speech. Yeah, to uh, yeah. There's a sense in which, you know, pleasantries are exchanged. A sense of, of contact is there. And, uh, and the other feature of right speech is um, you have to be aware in right speech that there's another person present. <laughs> this isn't always so <laughs> obvious to people. <laughs> they speak, and there's just there's, there's a shape there that I, <laughs> I throw my noise onto. <laughs> And so if someone is doing that, it's probably start to suggest somehow that uh, there's another person, <laughs> there's me. <laughs> I'm not just a, a receiver of your noise, you know. Thank you, Josh, that's enough for now. I, yeah, yeah, right, okay, I've heard that. Or, yeah, well, I'm not too interested in that right now, or, you know. But the first thing is just a sense of establishing metta. Uh, because you haven't got any medium apart from that. And then then you, you know you recognize there's another person there what's he what's his state i don't know he's and you listen to that where's the opening and then you also need to occasionally make the other person aware that you know you're here and you have your own stuff going on <laughs> that's the negotiation really we can't you can't get it right no way you can get it right from the get-go You've got to keep negotiating because the modalities, the two beings are themselves in dynamics that change. So if one wants to cultivate it, you know, you want to cultivate it, you've got to keep negotiate, negotiating things. Look for the pauses, allow pauses. How's that for you? Uh-huh, uh-huh, listen. And is it okay? You know, negotiate contact. Uh, that, the more you do that, the chances are that other people wouldn't also pick that up, negotiate contact. As you negotiate contact, it's a way of sensing, oh yeah, you sound like you're upset, is that correct? You know, so you give me the, give me the real thing, you know. And is it okay to say this? Oh, you don't, you know, I'm using these words quite, quite simplistically, but some way in which it's not just the conversation that's going on, but also awareness of the conversation and being able to to state that one is aware of the conversation and inquiring into how's that for you, and then it can help the person to really get what they, where they're coming from. And then also to be able to express one's own part in that negotiation. Wow, that really affected me a lot. Oh, that was... Oh, could you just give me a moment to take that in? You know, I'm here, I'm a human being, I'm taking that in. Or, well, uh, give me, I can't, I haven't got an answer for that right now. You know, so you're definitely not just letting the conversation just be a hypnotic effect, but there's moderation and mutual negotiation in there. Is it, could we talk about that later? There's a lot there. Oh, I'm feeling this right now, so could we just talk about this? You know, these sorts of things. And then that's, that's what right speech is about. 
uh, and it means we have to, you know, if we're talking to each other, there should be some way in which we're at least checking in with, you know, what's happening for you, or how's that, or keeping that in mind. Am I going on too long? (laughs) 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 Are you getting bored? (laughs) Sorry about it. (laughs) I should negotiate this. (laughs) I'll... uh, I'm a bit embarrassed because I'm looking at the clock, but uh, I'm trying to, I'm torn between answering these questions with some degree of thoroughness and, and recognizing your own time, but uh, I'll, I'll just uh, conclude. Thinking trance, I close my eyes in meditation, I get into a thinking trance. I try to stay mindful of the body. Mindset's become so dominant. This tendency cuts me off and reinforces the sense of an isolated self. Is it better then to keep the eyes open during meditation and sense the body breath within a field of experience? Yes, it is. And um, keep your eyes open. You don't have to... Ha- so remember with any of these systems, mindfulness of breathing, mindfulness of body, I think it's, it can be assumed that you've got to really kind of rivet yourself to it. And I don't follow that. Uh, I mean, I think one negotiates contact with one's own body, with awareness, you know, and no, I'm not ready, you know, the mind isn't settled enough, so we can widen the sphere to a visual sign, such as just looking to the sky, looking at the sea, looking at white snow, it's a very simple visual thing, just looking at the wall, so you're getting some sign that is making the mind steadier. To pick up a sign that helps to simplify the mind. So it could be a visual thing, keeping your eyes open. It can be tactile, so we have things called mala beads. You just hold the bead, rub it between your fingers. The tactile, do it again, slow it down roll it around your hand, slow it down, roll it, slow it down, hold it, squeeze it, methodically. So you've definitely got an external, well, you know, conventionally speaking, external support. That's that. Uh, And, yeah. You can use the sense, in other words, you can use the sense fields in a skillful way to simplify and to give support, the mind picks up something it is steadied by. Um, and, you know, I must remark that, um, you know, by and large in conventional, traditional Buddhist practices, they don't start out with sitting in meditation for hours on end. It's all that comes after you've really generated proper fields and uh, cleared um, some afflictive states through service, through uh, kindness, through being loved, being an affectionate or caring community. So some of the negative afflicts are alleviated, moderated, uh, some right understanding, and then you spend a little time meditating, taking that in, do good deeds, take in the quality of that, enjoy it. So it's much more holistic than, uh, and, um, and so you know, I really uh, trust that process. And so you can keep your eyes open, also deliberately think, you know, or chant or something, to give it a basis. When there's not many thoughts, no negative material, the mind is quiet, how and what does one investigate? Well, you might just not investigate for a moment or two, just just enjoy <coughs> and see what comes up in that. The mind may refine, the mind may grow more subtle, uh, your sense of, of mindfulness might 
change to something that has subtler awareness in it of what's going on. So the, the investigation becomes less an investigation, more a deepening sensitivity to experience. Yeah, it could be that. And uh, you might, uh, you might, images might come up, sense of space, sense of lightness might happen. You stay with that. And uh, at, uh, as the mind seems to stabilize, then whatever is being experienced, however it's, and you want to get to how that's experienced, so quiet, yeah, gathers not many thoughts. Well, what is the substance? What's the sign? Does the mind feel large or smooth or soft or bright? Then whatever is there uh, can be reviewed as uh, caused, changeable, moving, dynamic, in flow, not self, simply speaking. Mm. So that basis for insight is to review the substance, the subtle substance of mind and uh, the mind's object and contemplate with dispassion these energies and mindsets, mind states. Okay, that's enough for tonight. <laughs>